0: Thanks, Eric. Well, good morning, church. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. As we jump back into Matthew, we've been out of Matthew for the last few weeks. We were in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 for The month of December for Advent season, and our tagline for Matthew chapter 1 and 2 was the king's cradle, and that little icon was highlighted on the left side there. It was the cradle. We looked at Matthew chapter 1 and 2, which is Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. And now today we are shifting into the middle parts of the book, chapters 3 and on, where it's really Jesus, the king. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 told us that Jesus was the king. He was born as a king. And Matthew, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, unfolds what it looks like for him to be king. And so we're going to be looking at the king's commands. Jesus gives many teachings in the book of Matthew. And in these these middle sections, these middle chunks, he has parables, he has commands, he has instructions for us. And so over the next couple months, we're going to just be looking at Matthew and looking at Jesus' commands for us. What does the king command his followers to do and how does he command us to live. But before we do that this morning, I want to just remind us of who Matthew is, the author of this book. Matthew was a tax collector turned Jesus follower. And so we talked about this a little bit in the beginning of December, but I think it's good to do a quick overview and a reminder of who's writing this book to us. Matthew, he's also known as Levi and the other gospels refer to him as Levi, but here he refers to himself as Matthew and he writes under the name Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. That means he was a Jew who worked for the Roman, the Roman Empire who were controlling all of the region. And so Matthew was employed by Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son. If you remember in December, we has, in looking at chapter one and two of Matthew, we learned a lot about Herod the Great, right? The first Herod, he was, he was evil. He was suspicious. He wanted to snuff out Jesus. And so he ordered all of the baby boys in, in Bethlehem, and in their surrounding area, two years and under, to be killed. And Jesus and Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt to, to preserve Jesus' life. And so now Herod died not long after that. And then one of his sons, Antipas, is now on the throne during Jesus' public ministry. And so I think it's important for us to know and this is how Jesus transforms lives. Jesus transforms lives. He, he does it through his spirit. He does it through his word. He, he does it by calling people who, who have this allegiance to the world and transforming their allegiance from the world to himself. Matthew had an allegiance to the world. He was employed by Herod Antibus. He, was, he, was, he had a lot of money. He skimmed money off the top. He collected taxes. He was like an ancient IRS agent, only a shady, a crooked one who embezzled money. And so Matthew is this guy who's cozied up to the political leaders, to the religious leaders, and he's a shady guy who's working for Herod, the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. And he was similar. He was suspicious. He was ambitious. He didn't want anyone to take his throne. He wanted to build his own kingdom. And somehow Matthew is transformed from being a tax collector working for the Roman Empire to being a Jesus follower. Amen, church? This is what Jesus does, and we're going to see this over and over and over again in the book of Matthew. So just keep that in mind as we, as we go through this book over the coming months, that the author of this book is somebody who had their life incredibly transformed this isn't just a, an ancient book that we can ignore. This is, this, this is the experience and life and observation and transformation of a man, just like you and I, who had this radical life transformation. That's who Matthew is. Let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, all right, let's stop there. So if you have a Bible, open it up. Make sure your eyes are on the Bible. We're on page 808 in the Pew Bible. And I want you to see God's word this morning more than I want you to hear my word because I misinterpret some of this. But this is trustworthy. This is true. And so make sure as you come to Park Community Church that you're getting your eyes on God's word and that you're wrestling with God's word. In those days, Matthew writes. We can't skip over that because Matthew just jumped ahead about 28 years from Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 is the account of Jesus' birth in his early years when Mary and Joseph go to Egypt and then they return to Nazareth. And that's how chapter 2 ends it. It returns with, it, it ends, chapter 2 ends with them returning to Nazareth where they will raise Jesus. Remember that? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. They come back to Nazareth and now the next verse, Matthew chapter 2, 3 verse 1, Matthew picks it up. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' ministry is about to start. Jesus is now a grown man. He is an adult. There's about a 28-year gap, a 28-ish year gap. We don't exactly know how many years it was. 25 to, to 28, 29 year gap here. Where Matthew just glosses over it. He doesn't even touch it. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind, church, to keep in mind for us that the majority of Jesus' life was lived in mundane, ordinary, normal, day-to-day rhythms. I mean, from the time he's two or three years old, returning to Nazareth until he bursts on the scene with his public ministry at the age of 30, there is virtually no account of what he was doing with those years other than there is a story when he's 12 and he's in the temple doing some teaching. The majority of Jesus' life, the best leader who's ever lived, the, the man who created this incredible movement, the Son of God, the majority of his life was lived in the mundane, ordinary, day-to-day Rhythms of life. How many of you are you're passionate about Jesus? You want to change the world for Jesus? You want to go? You, you raise your hand. Here I, here I am, God. Send me. I will do whatever you call me to do. That's good to have that passion. That's good to have that zeal. Keep in mind, Jesus himself sat in a normal life. He worked a normal job. From what we know, he was an apprentice to Joseph, his father, as a carpenter. Jesus spent his days, like many of you, going to work, learning how to do his job, producing something that would be sold to help pay the family bills. Those of you who who may feel a little bit uncomfortable with God having you in kind of a mundane station of life, and you think, God, I want to go and do more for you, just think, he may be saying, no, right now is a time for you to sit. If my son did it, if the Savior of the world had to sit and wait and build and be with people, and have conversations with his family, and have meals with his family, you also, zealous Christian, can figure out how to follow God in the mundane and the ordinary. And those of you who, who may feel like your life is just mundane and ordinary, and, and you don't, maybe you don't even have that kind of passion or zeal where you want to go to the ends of the earth to, to make disciples, be comforted in that Jesus, our Savior, our example, He lived the majority of his life waking up, getting dressed, going to work, coming home from work, preparing food, doing dishes, spending time with family, going to bed to repeat the same cycle the next day. Isn't that amazing? We don't know what Jesus was doing for these 28 years other than he's apprenticing his dad his earthly dad, Joseph, as a carpenter. I think that's important for us to keep in mind, church. Jesus' public demonstration, which we see throughout the book of Matthew, his public demonstration came after years of private devotion. Jesus, the scriptures tell us that he learned obedience, that he grew in wisdom and stature. So Jesus is the perfect man, the one who never sinned. He is God and man. And this mystery is hard for us to understand. But somehow he learned obedience and he grew in wisdom and stature through years of private devotion. He privately and on a small scale walked with God day by day. He submitted his will to the Father's will day by day. And in the book of Matthew, we're going to see all of this incredible public demonstration of Jesus. We're going to see him baptized here at the end of this chapter, this great demonstration of his faith. We're going to see him heal people. We're going to see him raise people from the dead. We're going to see him do incredible, mind-blowing things for the kingdom of God, incredible public demonstration of his faith and his power. But keep in mind, church, that this came after years of private devotion. So don't beat yourself up if you don't currently have this great public life, this public demonstration of God's power. Stay faithful in the little church. Grow your private devotion. As we talked about last week, look at your roots and and tend to your roots and, and grow your roots that someday in God's timing, in God's will, in God's ways, you will produce fruit that is a public demonstration of the goodness and the grace of God. Well, let's keep in mind that Jesus' three years of public ministry, this public display, came after years of just private devotion, doing the right thing day after day. Jesus tells us that that he will give more to those who are faithful. Faithful with little, faithful with much. If you want to do incredible things for God, start doing the small things in obedience to God. Develop your private devotion and trust God to produce the public demonstration. All right, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, we cover that. John the Baptist, that's the next point here that Matthew wants us to see. He, he goes into teaching us about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophet. He's a prophetic voice preparing the way for the Messiah in the spirit of Elijah. And so this passage that Eric just read for us, it's about John the Baptist, this guy set apart by God to come and Preach and proclaim the coming kingdom of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is about to do something different in the history of the world. He is about to reveal Jesus as the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven, the glory of heaven. Jesus, who was in heaven on high, has now come to earth. And he's about to go from his private devotional life into this public demonstration of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bursting onto the scene. The kingdom of God where people are healed. The kingdom of God where, where the, the sick are made well. The kingdom of God where sins are forgiven for eternity is bursting onto the scene, and God sends a forerunner. That forerunner is John the Baptist. John comes preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And and this is prophesied in Isaiah. And later on in in the book of Matthew, we'll learn more about John the Baptist as well. And we'll learn how he came in the spirit of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, but he came with the spirit of Elijah. We'll see that later on in Matthew chapter 11, and there's more in Matthew chapter 14. About John the Baptist. This is John. He comes, verse 3. For this is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. He was just a weird guy proclaiming a glorious message, right? Some of you are weird people, and that's great. Be weird for God. Some of you are, are more normal. You don't wear odd clothes. That's fine. Wear your normal clothes for the glory of God. But God calls people and he sets them apart and, and makes them stand out in certain times and seasons. He ate locusts and wild honey. That wasn't uncommon food to eat for, for more of the lower class, the, the poorer people in that day and age. And so we see that John the Baptist is kind of on the outskirts of society. He's, he doesn't really fit into common culture He's he's an oddball. He, He associates more with the poor. We see Jesus often, when his kingdom bursts onto the scene, he's associating with the lowly and the poor. He's using the lowly and the poor. But look at the contrast here. John, he's eating locusts and honey. He's wearing camel's hair. He's associating with the weird, with the poor, with kind of the outcasts of society. But Matthew, the author of this gospel, is a tax collector. He runs with the elites. He's got plenty of money In fact, in in the book of Luke, Luke chapter, I think it's either 4 or 5, he's referred to as Levi here. Jesus calls him out of his tax booth to come and follow him. And it says that Matthew or Levi, he goes by both names, he has people over to his house for a great feast. So he he has a great house where he can have a many number of people and he throws this great feast with, with delicate food. This is the kingdom of God transforming all people. Those who associate with the poor and the lonely and the outcast, and those who associate with the elite and they have this, this internal selfish desire to want to build a kingdom for themselves. Jesus breaks onto the scene. The kingdom of heaven comes down and it upsets all of this and it unifies someone like John the Baptist and someone like Matthew the tax collector where they are now brothers in Christ serving a common mission. Verse 5. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So there's this great movement of people coming to hear John preach and proclaim about the kingdom of God. And they're repenting and asking John to baptize them. That's why he has this name, John the Baptist. He was known for baptizing people, for dunking them in the river Jordan. All the... Verse 5 then all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. There's this incredible thing happening where, where the town and the countryside and, and all these people hear about the coming Messiah. They hear about John the Baptist, this, this prophet who's, who's declaring the kingdom of God and they're coming to listen to him. They're coming to interact with him. And I think there's four types of people... Through, there's four types of people throughout the book of Matthew and I think we see these four types of people here in this passage, some more clearly than the others. Here's the four types of people. The resistant, the uninterested, the momentary or temporary followers, and the lifelong followers. We, we are introduced to these people here in Matthew chapter 3 and as we go through the book over the coming months, these people are going to come up over and over again. The resistant the resistant, for the most part, in the book of Matthew are the religious elite. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So verse 5 tells us that all these people were coming out from all the region. They were coming to hear John's message, to hear him preach and proclaim repentance and to be baptized by him. And so there's massive crowd, and in this crowd are these four types of people. Over the coming months, as we go through Matthew, I want you to ask yourself, what type are you? Let's look at them. Verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, you who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to from these stones raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire and so the resistant are the the religious elite the pharisees and the sadducees these these certain group of jewish leaders who they're they're legalists they 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 Build a hedge around the law, so God had given the Old Testament law and they made all these extra rules so that people wouldn't get close to breaking the law. Their hearts are hard. They, they really want recognition. They really believe that they can earn salvation by their works. They they put others down. They, they don't do justice. They follow God's law, but their hearts are cold. They are resistant to the message. They're resistant to who Jesus is. They're resistant to the upside-down kingdom, to the subversive kingdom that Jesus came to set up. They wanted a kingdom where they could rule from the top down. And Jesus came and set up this, this grassroots kingdom that grew from the bottom up, affecting every area of society. But they wanted to be noticed. And so they come to Jesus. They're, they're resistant to him. They're resistant they come, so they're, they're drawn out among these crowds, and, and they, they come to John wanting to be baptized by him. And John confronts them. He's a prophet. God's, God's given him the ability to understand the situation here, and he knows that their hearts aren't in it for the right reason. They're trying to do whatever they can to stay in position. They're trying to do whatever they can to to keep their religious prestige, their religious recognition. It says, you brood of vipers. Vipers are a snake. They're crafty. And so these Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're, they're in a crafty way trying to position themselves to stay in power, political power and religious power. We're going to see them over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew. Ask yourself, church, have you been around the church and around Jesus' teaching and around the Bible so long that maybe you fall into this camp where you're actually resistant to, to the raw teachings of Jesus because you've built a religious system? That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are. They've built a religious system and they're resistant to the raw Teaching of Jesus, from the ground up teaching of Jesus, because they've built a system where they can rule from the top down. We'll see them over and over again here in Matthew. The uninterested. Now, they're not explicitly noticed here in this text, but certainly I, I, they were in culture, right? And so, verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. That doesn't mean every single person who lived in the region and lived in Jerusalem. Okay, it doesn't mean every single person. This is, this is a way of saying that, the, that m- many people from culture, many people from these regions, many people from these towns were coming out to see John and to hear him. And so in these towns, in these places, there's people who are just uninterested. They're, they're not paying attention. They don't care. They don't know. Maybe they hear a little something, but they've got their own thing going on. They're too busy to care about this, this gospel movement, about this this prophet named John who's proclaiming the kingdom of God, who's calling people to repent of their sins and be baptized. We interact with those people daily, don't we, church? People at work, people in our neighborhoods, people in your families. Maybe maybe you are here this morning, you've been uninterested for years, and for whatever reason, you're here this morning. Keep in mind as we walk through the gospel according to Matthew that there's people in the In the scriptures and mostly just around the scriptures, they're not in here so much because they weren't close enough to care. And then we have the temporary fans. I think this is the biggest one that we need to pay attention to and be careful of. There's people who are coming out and they're they're hearing this message from John. They are they are repenting. They're doing this initial act of repentance. We'll talk about repentances in a minute, and they're being baptized, but they don't persevere. They don't remain with Jesus. They don't follow him for life. Matthew chapter 13 talks a lot about this, the parable of the soils. We'll talk about that in the future. We'll dig more into category number three later on. But we need to know that there are people who are temporary fans. They, they, they maybe attend church for a while or they, they follow Jesus for a while. Maybe even they say a prayer to receive Jesus as Lord or they are baptized to identify with Jesus. But then after some trials come, after some time passes, they fall away. I was reading a, in a book recently from a, another pastor who said the hard thing about leading a church and pastoring is that it's not hard to get people to show up to an exciting event It's far harder to keep them interested in Jesus for life. I think that's true. It's really easy to to get some good music and to get a good space and to get people to show up for an event, but it's incredibly hard and it's impossible for me as a pastor and for us as a people to force ourselves to stay interested in Jesus for life. That takes a work of the Spirit. That takes transformation. That takes God doing something in us like he did in Matthew changing our lives, transforming our lives. And so there's temporary fans. There's momentary followers. You've interacted with them. You know some. You're looking around like, they're no longer in my community group. They're no longer in my church. What, what happened? Keep praying for them. Who knows what God will do in bringing them back? But they may have just been a part of this church or, or following Jesus for a season because they thought that there would be some personal benefit for them. They didn't fully understand the gospel. They didn't genuinely taste and see that the Lord is good. And then the third category is lifelong followers. And that's primarily what we see here in this text, the characteristic of a lifelong follower. So the people who persevere with Jesus, who remain with him for life. And so, Jesus, John is telling the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They're the resistant. He's he's baptizing these momentary followers and preaching repentance, and he's telling them that you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and be baptized to identify with God. Pick it up here in verse um, verse 9 and going on. And we do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Again, the religious elite think We came from the, the, the religious elite. Abraham's our father. We can trace our lineage back. Some people think we, we grew up in the church. We know prominent people. We, we've served our time. We've, we've given our tithes. So of course we're in. John says it doesn't matter what you've done or who came before you. I tell you, God is able To from these stones raise up children for Abraham. And so he's beginning to prepare the people that this kingdom of heaven is for Jew and Gentile alike. There's now this incredible wide open door for Gentiles to enter into the faith with Jewish roots. Verse 10 Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Last week we talked about tending to our roots. This is saying that if we don't tend to our roots, our tree withers and it's chopped down and it's thrown into the fire. That that we can temporarily follow Jesus and have some good fruit and people can think that we're good people, but if we don't have roots that tap into the stream of living water, it's all fake. And then John, John goes on to say, I will baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am unworthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire so here he's saying there's there's two types of people there's there's those who are lifelong followers who who produce fruit in keeping with repentance who have been baptized for repentance and the holy spirit and fire we'll get into that in just a minute And God comes through and and he clears out these two types of people. The wheat, those who have been set aside for God, and the chaff, blown away into the fire. And so here's a definition of a lifelong follower. It's one who continually believes the gospel, that's repents, and identifies with Jesus as Lord. Baptism. I think here's what Matthew is doing here in this passage. He's showing us these these people and we're going to get to the end. Ultimately what he's doing is pointing us to Jesus. But in this passage, we see what it means to be a lifelong follower of Jesus. How can we know that we know that we believe? Or, or how can we have confidence, if we can have confidence, that verse 12, that we will be found as wheat, half, blown into the fire? What we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 3 and what we see throughout the book of Matthew is that a lifelong follower continually believes The gospel. Think about Romans chapter 12, which says that we must renew our mind. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we talk about this weekly here at Park Community Church, and hopefully in all of our community groups and our interactions with one another, is that we can't earn our salvation. Jesus lived the perfect life and died the sacrificial death in our place. We are saved by grace grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But we often forget that. And the temporary fans forgot that, and the resistant didn't get that, and the uninterested never heard that. But a lifelong follower continually believes the gospel, the good news, that Jesus is their substitute, that Jesus is the one who saves. Repentance. John says, repent in verse 2, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Repentance is a change of mind and action. Repentance means that, that I set my mind on believing the gospel, that I renew my mind with the gospel, that it wasn't that I said a prayer one time years ago and I signed up to follow Jesus. It's that daily I need to remind myself that Jesus is who he said he was and that Jesus did what it's recorded that he did, that he overcame sin and death and the grave and I am saved by grace, Through faith in Him. A lifelong follower needs to continually remind themselves of that truth. That is a fruit of the gospel. We repent. Repentance is a 180 degree turn from what's wrong and turn to what's right. Some people debate on is repentance turning away from what's wrong or is it turning to what's right? The answer is yes, it's both. You turn away from wrong belief, from wrong action, and you turn to God, to believing the gospel, and to living for him. A lifelong follower needs to continually live a lifestyle of repentance. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the the chapel door that started the Great Reformation, the first one was all of the Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance. Church, we are a people who need to continually repent, reminding ourselves of the gospel, renewing our minds of the gospel. That's why we gather on Sundays to hear the gospel, to rehearse the gospel, to sing the gospel, to remind us that we can't save ourselves, that no other person in heaven on earth can save us except for Jesus Christ. And then a lifelong follower also identifies with Jesus as Lord. That's what's happening here in baptism. So John came before Jesus baptizing with water for repentance. It's this preparatory baptism. People are saying, I, I, I believe in this coming kingdom. I want to turn from my sin. And so he's baptizing them in the Jordan River as a sign of their sins being washed away, as a sign of cleansing. This was often done in even other religions and among Jews, that they would go into the river and, and do this ceremonial washing to be cleansed from sin. And so that's what John is doing. He's baptizing them. He, he is bringing adults into the water and he's dunking them into the Jordan River as a sign of their, their uncleanliness being washed away. They come up clean. And he says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what's that? That just takes on a whole different level of baptism, doesn't it? That takes on a much different level of baptism. So there's a couple things here that we need to, that we need to think about. What is water baptism? Let's, let's talk for just a minute about baptism because it's something that we have questions about. It's something that many of us have different interactions with and different experiences and different traditions that come from our church, our church upbringing. And so water baptism here in the text, John the Baptist is baptizing people as a sign for cleansing. Okay, it's an act of repentance and an act of showing that I want my sins to be washed away. I want to be cleansed. And then he says, Jesus will come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Spirit baptism is when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the initial act. Spirit baptism has two prongs. One is the initial act when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we are then overcome with and filled with the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. It's what we believe biblically, and there's a ton of passages to walk through, and we're not gonna take all the time to do that this morning. But We believe here at Park Community Church that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. That means we are now identified. Baptism, baptizo, it means to dunk or to immerse. And it also means to Identify. We believe that what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit means that we are now identified with God, that His Spirit is living within us, that His Spirit has primary possession of us. In fact, it has sole possession of us. Now, we dabble with sin, but we we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the life of God. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and he transforms you. He's in fact the one leading to your place your faith in God. He, it's called regeneration. He is the one that's, that's causing you to ask questions. It's causing you to, to think about things. He's the one that is drawing you to church or to small groups or to Bible studies or to go sit in a closet on your own and read God's word. The Holy Spirit is drawing you. He's opening up your eyes. And then when you repent of your sin, when you when you turn from what's wrong and turn to what's right to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He fills you, and we, the church, are all baptized into Him. Let's look at a couple passages. First Corinthians. Uh, let's start with Acts chapter one, verses six through eight. It's on page nine oh nine in the Pew Bible. So here's the disciples sitting, waiting for Jesus. He's, he's ascended into heaven. It says, So when they were, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This, they will be baptized in the Spirit. This is also what it may mean by fire. When John says that Jesus will baptize you in the Spirit and in fire, the day of Pentecost, these these tongues, they, they spoke in tongues, other languages, so that other languages could understand the gospel, and it says that, that like flaming tongues came and sat over their heads. I think that's part of what Matthew has in mind here as he says you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Look at First Corinthians chapter twelve, thirteen. That is on page nine fifty-nine. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. Let's start in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 12. Let's start there. For just as the body is one, and this entire chapter is about the church and the gifts working out in the church. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Isn't that incredible? That's saying that we're all connected to one another. We all have different parts, but we are one body. Verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. John is saying that Jesus will come and he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms us. The Holy Spirit is the one who who causes us to be able to be adopted by God, to be called sons and daughters, and puts us into a family where we are brothers and sisters, and sends us into the world as neighbors and witnesses. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Lastly, look at page 977, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, page 977, and I'll read verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, the scriptures are telling us when when John the Baptist said that Jesus will come and baptize us with the Spirit, the apostles pick up on it and the scriptures pick up on it and say, We are placed into this family. We've received the Holy Spirit. There's one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are united to one another. This is identifying with Jesus as Lord. Baptism is an act of identifying with Jesus as Lord. It was an act of that in Jesus' day and it's remained an act of that throughout history. The scriptures tell us that that we are, when we receive Jesus as Lord, we receive the Holy Spirit and he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now fire can also be judgment. So fire, I think, can be purifying fire. It can be the fire of the Holy Spirit. It can be purifying fire, which is taking off our impurities. But also, in context here, it's, it's also separating the wheat and the chaff. So... John says you'll be baptized with the Spirit and with fire. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire. So Jesus comes and he baptizes us for new life with the Spirit. Also, fire with the Spirit. The Spirit is often associated with fire or fire without the Spirit. The eternal damnation in hell. And, and so, church, curious people among us this morning, will you believe the gospel? Will you repent? Will you change your mind from what's wrong and believe what's right and change your actions to follow and identify with Jesus as Lord? A way to identify with Jesus as Lord is still to be baptized. I believe that this is an incredible picture of identifying with Jesus as Lord. But these, these events are often tied together in the scriptures. Repentance of sin and baptism. Repentance of sin and baptism. Look at Acts chapter 2 again. Acts chapter 2 verses 37 through 41. It's on page 910. This is Peter giving a message to Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit had come down. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts. They heard the gospel of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They were cut to the hearts. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "'Brothers, what shall we do?' And Peter said to them, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, "'in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins.'" And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Turn from what's wrong and turn to what's right. Be baptized. Identify with Jesus. Be identified with him. Make a public declaration that he is your Lord. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And actually skip over to, jump over to Acts chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. I just love this picture of repentance, turning from what's wrong and turning to what's right. Peter says to them, Repent therefore and turn again, turning from what's wrong to what's right, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's what repentance does, church. It's not beating ourselves up because we've done wrong and we are wrong. It's, it's acknowledging that we need a Savior, that we are wrong and we've done wrong. It's turning from that, turning to Jesus. We need a Savior And times of refreshing come. We are renewed. So back to Matthew. Matthew is saying that, that he baptized with water for repentance, but Jesus will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Jesus does something interesting. Matthew does something interesting in recording this. So he's told us who John the Baptist is, what his baptism means, what repentance means, a little bit about baptism and and what that looks like, and then pick it up in verse 13. And then Jesus came from Galilee. And this is Jesus bursting onto the scene as an adult. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. I mean, John knows that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John is not that. John is just a man appointed by God to proclaim the things of God. But Jesus is the ultimate man of God. He is God appointed to save mankind, not just to proclaim to mankind, but to save mankind. And so John is here in the presence of the Messiah and Jesus is saying, I need you to baptize me. And John says, no way, you're way greater than I. You need to baptize me. But Jesus answered, verse 15, let it be so now, for this it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus goes to John to be baptized. Jesus had nothing to repent of. He he wasn't baptized as a sign of repentance. He was baptized to identify with us, to fulfill all righteousness as verse 15 says. He fulfilled all the customary laws. He fulfilled all of the traditions. He did everything that a lifelong follower of God ought to do. He fulfills all righteousness. We say this often at our church. Jesus lived the life that we can't, and he died the death that we deserved. He lived without sin. He, he lived perfectly, that phrase, fulfilled all righteousness. That means he did everything as the Old Testament law commanded, He did everything that you and I ought to do that we are incapable of doing and then he died the death that we deserve. And he did this church so that what is said of him could be said of us. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's God's voice from heaven to Jesus. His perfect beloved Son. I mean, in this beautiful moment of Jesus' baptism, the, the something like a dove, it's not necessarily a dove, it's he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on Jesus. He's fulfilling all righteousness, he's doing everything in our place that he's doing everything that we can't. The Spirit of God comes down and the voice of God speaks out audibly so that people around can hear. And he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Church, the question for you this morning is, is God pleased with you? Do you believe that God is pleased with you? Deeply satisfied with you? That's the gospel. The gospel is that God, your heavenly Father, is as pleased with you as he is with his beloved son, Jesus. This this passage isn't about that, okay? Don't get me wrong. This passage here is setting Jesus apart. God is saying, Jesus is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is the perfect man. He is worthy of all worship and praise and glory, that's God's voice from heaven setting Jesus apart. But ch- church, where this meets where the rubber meets the road for us this morning is that I think most of us feel as though God is generally displeased with us. I sinned again. I did that thing for the 100th time. I just can't stop. Ah, I didn't do my devotions again. I didn't pray. I didn't give enough money. I Isn't that the posture of many Christians? We feel that our Heavenly Father is displeased with us, and so we often try and do more and and clean ourselves up and become more religious or more righteous so that we could one day hear our Father say, well done, my faithful servant. Well done, my blessed son or daughter. But church, the truth of the gospel is that if we are in Christ Christ, These words that God says of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, is true of you and I. If you are in Christ, God says, this is my daughter or my son with whom I am well pleased. Let's look at some passages so that you can see how this is true. John 1, 12 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you are a child of God, hear his voice. I am well pleased. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2:51 says, "For our sake he, Jesus, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." Do you hear that church? Jesus, the beloved son, who God's voice came out from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He became sin in your place on your behalf so that you might become the righteousness of God so that you could hear God's voice say, my son or my daughter who I am well pleased with. 1 Peter three eighteen. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, Jesus the righteous, the beloved son with whom God is well pleased suffered in our place so that we could become the beloved son or daughter with whom God is well pleased. Colossians 1.22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How many of you feel holy and blameless and above reproach. You don't feel that way, but you are that way. That's the truth of the gospel. Repent and believe. Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Church, this is the glory of the gospel. The incredible Jesus that we follow, that we serve, that we are wrapped up. And if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, God is just as pleased with you as he is with his son. Let's pray. God, would you help us to believe that? Oh, how I am so tied into believing that you think about me Um, That that your thoughts about me are tied to my actions. That you are pleased or displeased with me based off of what I do. And yet here the, the trajectory of scripture and the teaching of scripture is telling me that if I am in Christ, my life is hidden. My earthly life, my fleshly life is hidden and I now have this new life. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on my behalf, that I might become the righteousness of God. And so, God, I pray that all of us would renew our minds on that gospel truth this morning and believe what's true. Stir our hearts with a greater affection for you this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen.